spending time in the book of James. And uh, I don't know if you've read it before, but we'll get into this here real quick. But uh, this week, just hanging out with Alan and talking through just the text, we were just talking about life. And he was across the table from me, and he just, we were actually talking about something that was really hard that we had experienced together. And he looked at me, and he said something, and and it it really caught caught me off guard. And he just said, hey, it's crazy to think, Evan, if you really consider, you and I probably wouldn't be where we are now if we hadn't gone through a certain experience and experiences together and then apart. And it just really struck me as I was just even studying the word that we're going to like lay before us today. God's going to lay this word out before us today. And it was really just powerful of like, gosh, this is really true. And that's really good news. That what, God words, what God's word says isn't just words on a page, but it's literally his words. As Timothy Paul would say, it's breathed out. It's inspired by God himself. So I was just encouraged by that this week. Um, so Alan's been going through Formed, and I'll be going through this book when I get this opportunity. And this whole book, the book of James, and if you're familiar with it, you'll know this right away. The book of James is really a combination of Proverbs and the Sermon of the Mount. All right? So if you're familiar with those two things and you read this book as we do this together over the next however long we're going to be doing that, we are just going to find that this James is not repeating anything really new. He is consistently coming back to what the scriptures have already said and actually what Jesus himself said. And see, James is the half-brother of Jesus, so he knows him really well. But James is also the first chief elder of Jerusalem, the first Christian community that really ever existed. So this is a guy who's leading a lot of people and he is getting really, really practical. And what I want to do is, and I want to just say, if I had to sum up the book of James in two words, those two words would be this, dirty theology. What do I mean by the term dirty theology? When I say dirty theology, this is what I mean. It's like a new pair of shoes right? It's like a new pair of shoes. You get this new pair of shoes, and you don't want to get them scuffed up, right? Whatever. Anytime we've got shoes, like, this is the hardest thing to do. Like, I don't want them to get beat up. I just got them. I like, my kids step on them. I'm like, golly day. No, 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 no. We all kind of do this, right? It's the first thing we do. At least if we can help it, right? We don't want them to get, but, but what is the point of having shoes? Is it to sit in a closet, staying safe from the reality of what would happen to them if they leave the comfort of the closet? Keeping them away from the dirt, the mud, and the rain, or is the point actually to wear them, to go outside and live in them, to actually let them get dirty and muddied? See, shoes are constructed in a way so they can withstand that. They can stand up. They're built in this way to be able to go through everyday life. And see, I think... Like our shoes, our faith is meant to be lived in and worn in. Our faith is meant to be built up in a way that it can go through all of the things that life has. And it should be worn just like our shoes. So that means things are going to get dirty because we're going to be dealing with our sin. We're going to be dealing with the sin that exists in the world that affects us. 
And we're going to be dealing with the fact that God's grace intersects with our lives in the middle of the life that we live in and all of the things that happen to us. See, this is what I mean. This is what James is getting at when you think about dirty theology. It's not sanitized. It's not cleaned up. It's real life. God's grace meets our lives. See, we live in a time where a lot of Christian theology, meaning what we believe about God, can really champion, and this isn't bad entirely, but we can really champion these ideas of certainty. Like we know, and there are certainly things that we should preach and say with certainty that we know. The exclusivity of Christ and how he has saved us, that is bedrock. We should claim that with certainty. But sometimes we can actually act in ways where we kind of know everything there is to know about God. And what we've done is we can systematize things like real life. We can systematize. We can sanitize things that aren't quite, hey, if it feels dirty, let's clean that up a little bit and put it in a nice, neat little box. And then let's go on our way. Knowing versus living out what we know can easily get championed in our circles, our church circles. And, and so what happens often, and it, that can create a vacuum or a void within the church, within places like Grace Hill. Within the context of what James is writing to. So questions about how we are to live in light of our relationships, in light of our doubts, in light of our emotions and our struggles and suffering can get pushed to the corners of the room, can get pushed to the corners here where we go, I don't, let's not talk about that's a little uncomfortable. I don't really know how to say the right thing. I can't, I can't figure God out exactly with what he's doing. And what we can do is sometimes label things like our doubts and our fears and our emotions as things that are less important. Or we can label things like, that's just a lack of faith. Or even worse. And the natural consequence when this occurs inside of our church, and what James is going to be speaking to very specifically, is that our relationships with one another, the way we regard our struggles with one another, the way we deal with suffering and look at the events that happen all over the world, what happens is that in this space, we, we, what becomes less important is how to live in light of that. And instead, we focus on what do we know? It's in this space we can begin to believe in sanitized versions of the gospel, one that categorizes, like I said, neat boxes and leaves very little space for what James is going to hit on, this, the dirty parts of life. And that's just inevitable. And so in light of that, we face the fact that what Jesus told you and me is that the two most important things are to love God and to love one another. Which means Jesus, our Savior, whom we worship, is far more interested in how we live our lives, not simply what we know. And that's where it gets dirty. That's the living part. We're all in this room living, going through different things, how do we love God and others? How do we do that in light of that? It's messy. It's dirty. And James is going to press for us over and over again this reality that what we like to say in Christian circles, especially in pastors, is this reality of orthodoxy, which all that means is right belief, okay? 
Jesus and James are going to over and over again show us that orthodoxy, right belief, correct belief about God, and orthopraxy, which is just a fancy way of saying how we behave, those two things are not in competition with one another. In fact, they're actually wed together, and James is going to spend the entire letter working through that intersection of orthodoxy and orthopraxy, right belief with right way of living. See, if you have one without the other, James is going to be very clear that is not the gospel. It's not. Jesus says as much in his great commission. He stands before his disciples, before he ascends into heaven, and what does he say? And it will be on the screen behind me. He says, the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they came, they saw him and worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always. What Jesus lays out for his disciples and for us is exactly what James is focusing on for us in the entire letter. And here's what I mean. Jesus' commission is twofold. He says, make disciples. Tell them the right thing. They need to know about me. They need to know right things, orthodoxy, right beliefs about me. But then he says, teach them to obey all that I have commanded him. And see, that part is the orthopraxy. How? Not simply what. How do we live our lives in light of what God has done for us in the midst of the messiness of life. And this is where James is so helpful and practical for us. James is gonna get after what does it mean to live for God? How do we trust Jesus? What does that look like? It's like those shoes. We gotta get our shoes dirty. And James is going, that's the whole point. Your faith is going to be a little dirty. And I just want to, I want to pause before we just dive into that text because this is just really, really, really important for us to like really get. And I'm thankful that I'm here with you. See, yes, I'm preaching. I'm the pastor. I'm standing up here. There's an elevated stage. I'm thankful to be with you in this text wrestling with what God is saying to you and to me today. I'm just really thankful to be with you. Like to hear each other sing truth about God is going to be putting into practice the very things that God's word is going to say. This is what it means to live for me. Like I'm just thankful to be with you and being reminded that God has not left us alone with what he calls us to be. And my longing for you each of you, so you would find great comfort right now experiencing the fact that we're all together. We're not alone. What a gift of grace that God gives us to come every week, sitting under the word, worshiping together, grabbing coffee, doing all of the things, but ultimately being reminded we're God's together. God is speaking in the room. 
He always is speaking when we come together. He is always doing that. Mel is constantly helping us see that when we start our worship service and when we end it. God is always speaking. And what God is saying is listen to what he has to say. God, would you just help us this morning as we just unpack? We're just gonna spend time, Lord, in four verses. And God, I, I, I do, I just, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just literally, literally now in this space encourage each one in this room even those who are listening, maybe online, God. Even though they're not physically with us, but that God, like the literal reality that we, we're in space together matters. And so God, I pray that as we consider your word, Lord, that as we'll even study in the following weeks, that man, we don't wanna just be hearers of your word, but we wanna be doers. So God, would you do that work in us? Help us to trust Jesus. That's just in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's jump in. Turn to James chapter one. We're gonna spend time in the first four verses. It'll be on the screen. I wanna read it aloud together and then we're just gonna, we're gonna ring out these four verses together. James chapter one, verses one through four. I'm gonna read and you can follow along. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. (laughs) Doesn't James just hit the ground running? Like, I'm not joking. He's literally getting after it right away. There's no easing into what he wants to say. It's just, boom. Hi, I'm James. Greetings. Life's hard. How's that for a letter? No small talk, just diving deep. I love this guy. But a bit of context. James is doing that because he knows these people. He's writing to people who are Jewish Christians. Again, this is like the first community of believers, right? Jesus has just come, and now he's writing to all these people. Most of them had been in Jerusalem, and then all of a sudden, life has gotten really difficult, And so he's writing to these 12 tribes of the dispersion. And what he's saying is, man, I know you have been dispersed from where you used to live. Life for you now has been turned upside down. And you now live outside of what used to be home for you. And as God's people all throughout the Old Testament, we see over and over again, God having to comfort his people who have been displaced. And here again, James is doing a very similar thing He's seeking to comfort these people who have been displaced because of their faith and they have been suffering persecution. And so we see all over the course of this letter, all of the readers who are scattered are either in poverty or in impressed conditions due to persecution. And James' singular goal is to encourage them in the midst of their struggles and suffering. That's why he just gets right after. He goes, hi, I'm James. You know who I am. I'm not even going to tell you that I'm the half-brother of Jesus. I'm not even going to tell you that I'm the chief elder of Jerusalem. You already know that. I know you. Hey, life is really hard. Hey, I've got something for you. So practical. So deep. James began with one of the most difficult questions humans face living on planet Earth. Why do hard things happen? Why does suffering exist and why do difficulties come my way? I'm looking out in the room and I know some of you right now, that is exactly the question that is weighing on your shoulders, on your heart. It's causing anxiety and just strife. I know that. James 
God is speaking to us in this place right now. If anyone is in this room, you have asked that question at some point. Why does this stuff happen? And right away, James says, count it all joy. What? Be serious, James. I thought you were supposed to be a pastor. I'm struggling. My life is upside down. What the heck, man? Count it all joy. It's the first thing he says. The SV translates that word counted. Other translations say consider. What we need to get here is James is encouraging struggling people in the moment to engage their minds in a way that slows down. If you remember the sermon in Hebrews says, consider one another. Slow down. Think. Engage your mind in light of what is happening to you right now. Because James is saying, what we're going to need to regard this as is a gift. And that's a really big deal. He's addressing people like some of us in this very room who are experiencing real pain and real struggle. And he says, count it all joy. What is joy? What is it? James isn't dictating to suffering people how they're supposed to feel. James is a pastor. James knows God. James himself has watched his own brother suffer. He's not indifferent to suffering, but he says, count it all joy. He's not telling you, hey, there's this terrible thing that happened. Yay. The rendering of the word in Greek speaks to a state of being, the way we are, rather than just sheer emotion. Shame, uh, joy is not the same thing as happiness. Happening, happiness does not exist in suffering. Happiness does not exist in suffering, and that is not what James is saying. He's saying, count it joy in the midst of your suffering And he knows there's nothing to feel happy about in the midst of that suffering. That's why James is exhorting those who are suffering this. He's not ignoring the humanity of our condition or asking any of us or these people again who are in the middle of things to pretend like they're superheroes and act like nothing hurts. Instead, Derek Tidball writes, James is telling us that joy, what joy is, lean in for this. Joy is an unnatural reaction of deep, steady, unadulterated, thankful trust in God. That's wholly different than walking around in the midst of what's going on in our lives with a fake plastic smile pretending everything is okay. Wholly different. The context for this gets worked out even more as we keep digging into the text. There's this really small word 
that we might not catch at first glance as we read this. It's small, but it's significant. And it's the word when. Pause for a moment and take in this word when. We just talked about joy in the midst of suffering. Consider it all joy when. God's very word to us is wrought with blessing and grace. This is the dirty theology that James is laying out. He's saying, life is hard and God knows it. James does not say to us if we face trials of any kind, but when we face trials of any kind. God does not have his head in the proverbial clouds, friends. James is saying to us, God is reminding us that he's acutely aware of what we face in the midst of this broken world and in the midst of our broken bodies. I love God's word because all over, from Genesis to Revelation, it shoots everyone who reads it straight. God knows it, James knows it, and it's something that every single one of us, especially the readers of this letter, that they need to let it sink in, that God is seeking and speaking and seeking to say through James to say these three things. God is saying all throughout Scripture, I know. I see. I care. When? I know. You don't need to turn here, but I want you to listen to what David, the psalmist, writes in Psalm 56. David, we find David in this very midst. He's expressing deep grief over what he's experiencing. What's happening to him in this context, Saul is on the prowl looking for David. He's not just looking to like give him a talking to or deliver some bad news. He literally wants to kill him, to murder him. And here's the glimpse into David's life when this test, this thing that James is talking about right now, this is what is happening. We get a real-time shot of what does James mean in this? David is afraid. He is not happy. He's literally crying because what he's experiencing is overwhelming. But listen to what David says to God as he pours out his heart and soul in light of this experience. And we'll see how this ties to exactly what James is saying. Psalm 56, and I'm going to use the NASB translation. David writes this to God who knows us, sees us, and tells us, I care. These are David's words. You have taken account of my miseries. God, you have taken account. You know, you see, you understand all that is going on with me. All of my miseries. You put my tears in your bottle. David's tears are literally Held by God. Are they not in your book? David, 
is talking about, David is experiencing everything that James is laying out for you and me in this text. David is sharing how hard these trials are, how hard the things that God is allowing him to go through. And he doesn't know how everything is going to work out yet. But he does know the most important thing, and it's what James keeps pressing home in these short verses already, that God is with him. God knows, God sees, God cares. He says the same thing that James is pressing. God's in control. David says, I will trust him. God, you are at work in the midst. That's the end of Psalm 56. David is counting it all joy because he knows that God is ultimately in control. Let's look at the next key word in our text. James says the word trials. All kinds of trials. That's what this means. This is a high-level understanding of trials. This isn't some specific exact thing that he's, he's referencing. He's saying this is trials of any kind. All kinds of them is what he's referring to. And he's speaking generally that these are tests for each follower of Jesus. In fact, the word for trial in Greek is so broad that it would include things like something that would happen externally as well as internal realities of enticement for sin and temptation to sin. Now, is James all alone on an island here? We already saw what David said. But is this, is this just James coming up with this theology on his own? James is literally, and I want to show this to you on the screen, James is literally picking up on Jesus' very words to us on the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, 10, 10 through 12, It's on the screen. This is Jesus' words. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Remember, this is Jesus' words here. Rejoice. Be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. James is picking up nothing new. He's reiterating the very same thing that our Lord and Savior himself said as he lived on this earth. The point is that Jesus and James are saying that suffering as a Christian is going to be a universal experience. Gosh, does that sound like good news? Hey, come follow me. Suffering is just going to be part and parcel of following me. None of us gets a pass on this one. No one. No one in this room gets a pass. Whether the trial or the testing is big or small, all of these things have been ordained by God as we live in a world that we like to use language here where we are battered and complicit. Battered by the effects of sin and in the sin of other people and what they do to us and what is done, but also complicit in the fact that we, we are sinful to our core. We are complicit in the things that are wrong with the world around us as well. 
But why? Why does God allow us to go through this kind of testing? Why does he let those he loves so much suffer? And this is the dirty theology that James is getting us all wrapped up in. And and this has to do with the fact that God, all over the scriptures, and James is pressing in these verses, he's pressing, you cannot, Christian, have a theology of God without him being separate from trials and suffering. You cannot. God is not outside of this. God is not somehow distant just watching this happen going, oh shoot, I hate that that happened. No, there is a mystery of the sovereignty of God that James is pressing into us that requires us to understand that God is sovereignly and carefully in control of everything. And I don't know how that always works out. I don't know. That's not the point to know it all. Thousands of years of scholars and theologians trying to figure out what is, how does God's sovereignty work? But James is simply putting, just like Paul does all over the New Testament, he does not try to explain everything away. It's just that God is not separate from our suffering. It's all over the Bible. And so this is the million dollar question. Why does he allow us to go through it? Is there a point Is there a purpose? That's the question. I want to know. I I so deeply want to know. James tells us in verse 3. Here's your answer. For you know the testing of your faith, the trials, the suffering, the difficulties, produces steadfastness. I'd love to pull the room and go, What would you put in there that you would like to see, James say? What's the reason? And just be curious. What would we, would we, who here would write down steadfastness? And if you write, if you raise your hand, I'm gonna go liar. That's not what you would put down. I want away from it. I don't want to stay in it. James is going, the whole point is you stay in it. God is doing something and producing it within you. Steadfastness. You and you and me and everyone who follows Jesus. That is his plan. That is his purpose. Why does James say, for you know? Like, I was literally irritated when I was reading this. Like, for you know. It's almost like he expects us to know that already. For you know, Christian, who is in the midst of being persecuted, who's lost everything, whose family has been upset, who's being persecuted because you're believing in Jesus and everything in your tradition, all that's gone this way, and all of a sudden it switches now because this Jesus guy, and now people hate you, and you're being treated unjustly. Hey, for you know. Again, James is a pastor. James is someone who's acquainted with this same reality, and he's saying, for we know. That this purpose is specifically, God is specifically aimed at you and my character. God deeply loves us and knows us and wants our character to be formed into the image of his son, Jesus. That's the working purpose within the testing of trials that we go through. Guys, testing's all over the scriptures. Proverbs 27, 21 says, the crucible for silver And the furnace is for gold, and a man is tested by his praise. 
In 1 Peter 1.7, we see the same understanding of testing what God wants to produce in us. Just what James said. 1 Peter says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, the character of your faith, not just what you know, but what you do, what you believe, the dirty theology of God's grace in your life intersecting. He's saying that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be to the found to result in the praise and glory and honor of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus uses these trials to produce steadfastness, which is intensely tied to our character. And just like precious metals that have to be purified, so too the imperfections in our life need to be purified and melted away. And so the crucible, the furnace for us, is the trials of life in which God does a mysteriously beautiful work of conforming you and me with a purpose in the midst of hard things that we would have steadfastness, that we would be rooted deeper, like Psalm 1 says. We'd be rooted deep into God's love for us Streams of living water that would flow forth in season or out of season. This is what he is saying. James' whole point of trials is to grow within us steadfastness. So what is that? So steadfastness has two components to it. One, it's being fixed in a specific direction. There's one direction. Steadfastness. I'm going right here. This is the direction I'm going and I'm not moving. And the other part to it that is, is, is tied to it is that there's a purpose. There's a firmness in this purpose, in this direction. I will not be swayed by anything. This is where I'm going, and I'm firm in the direction I'm going to head. That's exactly what James is saying Jesus is after. I want you to have steadfastness in your trust in me. Your direction, your purpose is me, my love for you, to live in my kingdom the way that I have made you. I want steadfastness in these trials and all of these things that you go through. That is its specific purpose to grow in each of us deeper character that trusts in Jesus. And James is just going to keep unpacking this over and over in all this teaching. Steadfastness is produced to help us keep living for God. And as Jesus said, to be able to obey all that he has commanded. And this is the reason why we start to conduct our lives in a manner worthy of the calling that Jesus has bestowed on us. Steadfastness gives us a choice. Does it not? Do I stay or do I, do I move? Steadfastness means when we face trials, we don't leave God. We don't abandon him. That's the temptation, isn't it? That's what's true for me. Anytime I just, I just want out. You show me the way out, and I would almost always take it. If I'm just being honest, I don't like it. Am I alone in that? But steadfastness isn't the final landing place that James is aiming at for us. He says, and let steadfastness, that character in you, have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James moves us to see that steadfastness is meant to grow in us, this idea of being perfect and complete. But what does James mean by perfection? 
This is a very deeply Jewish context. When we read this, it's like perfect, like, like, ble- like everything's good. No, like this Jewish context for this is, is, is this idea that how Christians, their character would be formed in the nature of being able to simply trust God, to endure. It's up and down. It's a bit bumpy, but it's complete. It's whole. And that's what he means. Steadfastness will make us whole. We won't be perfect until we're with Jesus. And James is going, and so your character will be complete. You won't be lacking in the midst of all the things that come your way because you will trust me. That's his point. Our character, the wholeness of our character being formed into Christ's nature is the heart of James' concern while he's trying to comfort and encourage people in the midst of suffering. And so here's the call for us. How how do we obey this part? We can let steadfastness have its effect or we, we can choose not to. In God's sovereignty, he has given us a part to play. This isn't automatic, which is why James is running after these folks to say, hey, 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 don't miss what's happening here, guys. Grace Hill, this is to you and me today. Don't miss what's happening here because you know what? We can miss it. We can be deceived. And what this means is we need help. We need to encourage one another. We're pounding this, I know. In all manner of church life, we're pounding the idea. We need to encourage one another. We need to share the hard places in our life with one another so that we can see and have other people remind us that God hasn't left us. God didn't forget me. God isn't being unfaithful. James says, let it have its full effect. Grace Hill Let it have its full effect on us. But that means we got to care for one another in that place. Because every one of us is tempted by sin. Evil is smart. It's not content in this room, even though God is here. It's not content in this room to just let this stand and then go, yeah, that's great. Thanks, I'm going to leave. Because guess what? When we leave out of this place, we'll sing some songs and we'll say some things. But you know what? Immediately after we leave this place, immediately, maybe even sooner than even leaving this place, what rushes back in? Mm, That was good, but mm, I don't know. Nothing's changed. Evil is so smart. So, so smart. We undersell it so often, guys. And it's why we say encourage one another daily. That's not because we just want to be a friendly church. That's not the goal. We want to be a godly church that follows Jesus. And evil is wicked. And so we have to fight the moment we finish singing today to believe this. Steadfastness is the point. How do we do that? We need to help each other. We need to share that with each other. We need to confess the places that it's just hard to believe this. That's what James is doing. He's writing to people that don't have it all together. We're just like these people. Where are you struggling to have joy in the midst of what you're going through? 
James is speaking to a dirty area of life that, honestly, I just want to put the shoes back in the closet and go, I, I just don't want to deal with that. God, just do, I, I just, I, no, 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 no. I'm worn out. I'm worn out. And see, this is the temptation that we all face in the midst of difficulty. We start to believe. God, are you you really in the middle of suffering? So maybe that means we don't spend time in his word because I don't feel like I'm getting anything right now. Must not have anything for me. And in light of that, this suffering is so unbearable. What the heck, man? Why are other people having such a great time in life and I'm here with tears in a bottle trying to give them to a God who I don't know if really listens? What happens then? We begin to question God's goodness. Is God good? When the crap is hitting the fan, literally? Is, like that's the question. That's the million dollar question. Everyone's wrestling with it. And that begins to slow. Again, evil is not, evil's so smart, you guys. And if I begin to doubt God's goodness, then I start to doubt his love. I want to close with how do we fight against that? How do we count it all joy? The band can come up and like, how, how, how do we do this? The table reminds us in those places of doubt and struggle. Our Savior, as Philippians 2 would say, put on flesh and bone, left the perfect relationship between the Father and the Holy Spirit, and Jesus became just like you and me. He walked into a world that was battered and ravaged by sin. All throughout Jesus' life, he's sitting there saying, I didn't come to serve I didn't come to be served. I came to serve you. Did Jesus not experience testing? He did. Did Jesus have to fight evil? Was evil content to let the Son of God Alone, or did it tempt him the same way we ourselves get tempted? But you know what James reminds us about steadfastness? Is that Jesus was steadfast. Jesus' character over and over again was proven to be one that trusts 
God the Father completely. This table represents a spot in Jesus' very life where just like you and me in whatever circumstance we have, just like the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus leans down with tears in his eyes, his experiencing panic and, and all of the things that you and me feel, begs God, would you remove this trial, this test? Please remove it. This table represents that prayer on our behalf. The gospel reminds us that our very Savior is the one who is steadfast in the throes of trial and suffering. And he showed us that God loves us so much die on a cross to come for us. That's what this table represents for you and me. That's how we have a shot at what James says of letting steadfastness have its effect on us. We come asking God for the help to trust him and we're just simply reminded this morning us. He sees us. He knows us. He cares for us. He has a purpose for us. And he hasn't left us alone. So I want us to come to the table this morning together. Just confessing, God, I, help me here. Help my, un, I believe this, but help my unbelief, God. Please, Help me to be able to share my story with other Christians who can help point me to the fact that over and over again that God has not left the building. And trust him. With tears in a bottle, we can hold them for each other, helping us to grow in trusting that Jesus is working a purpose in the midst of things, whether we see it right now or not. I want you to come to the table when you feel ready. I'm going to pray. And then Mel and the team will lead us in responding to God. Heavenly Father, just so thankful you shoot us straight. Lord, I know in this room as these four verses have been laid out before us, God, as you're speaking to us through them, that Lord, I know right now that evil wants to, to, to have its way in this room. And God, I just, I just, Father, I ask that you would protect your beloved children in this room for trying to trust and believe in you, God, in the midst of hard things, in the midst of unbearable things. Would you help us to have the strength to choose to be steadfast, to choose to trust you in the midst of things, even if we don't understand it all, God. God, I pray that as we come to the table this morning, that as we take the cracker and the juice, God, that we would just be reminded that this is our Savior who stands before us today, saying, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. I'll give you what you need to trust me. 
God, as we do that, I pray that we would take into account the fact that our brothers and sisters are with us doing the very same thing, seeking to obey all that you've commanded and to trust you, God. Yes, it's in Jesus' name.